I see a thumb in the back. I haven't seen a thumb here. I'm not seeing corresponding. Oh, there's two thumbs. Okay, here we go. Off and running. April the 21st, 2019. This is an attenuated uh, lecture today because it is first fruits. I have my tie, first fruits tie. Uh, I don't remember who gave it to me, but I believe it was Robin. In any event, uh, this is a, it has a slightly different feel to it than my typical lecture. The feast day of first fruits is actually today. That's unusual. It actually is first fruits today. There are seven feasts of the Lord, and one of those is first fruits, and today actually is first fruits, April 21st, 2019. And first fruits are all the feast days are determined by the Hebrew calendar, which is based on the new moon as it is seen from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So when they see the new moon, that, of course, triggers the time sequence that determines these feast days. Passover this year was April the 19th. The first Sunday after the weekly Sabbath that follows Passover is the feast day of first fruits. Again, that's today. In other words, Passover was what? Thursday? So the first day after the weekly Sabbath, which is Saturday, happens to be first fruits, and that's the feast day of first fruits. So it goes Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. First fruits is the third, and eventually Shabuot, and then uh, trumpets, atonements, and tabernacles. There are seven of these in the Hebrew calendar. Today is first fruits. Hopefully I've repeated that enough to where it makes some kind of sense. It's not common for first fruits and Ishtar or Easter to correspond. Today is one of the days they do. There's a different reckoning system for each of those. In 2019, they coincide. As you know, Jesus Christ decided before he installed time to resurrect himself. Notice my language, his biblical language. I'll prove that in a second. He chose to reconcile, I'm sorry, to resurrect himself on first fruits. The first day after the weekly Sabbath in the Passover week, or the eighth day. So the crucifixion week is a seven-day event. The eighth day is the day that he resurrected himself. Now, here's the scriptures for that. John 2.19. Oops, can't make a two. As of my infirmities caused by agedness. And John 10:17. Now this is mainly for the internet audience, the vast internet audience. Vast is a relative term. Easter or Ishtar has very limited relationship to Passover. It has some, but it's just I don't know how to even describe where what Easter. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Easter was essentially a concept. It's an agreement at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. In other words, a group of men, uh, uh, religious figures, if you will, got together at Nicaea in 325 A.D. and had an agreement as to what Easter would be. Easter was to be observed on the first Sunday following the full moon, which occurred on or 
are, are subsequent to the vernal equinox. So that makes no sense. I don't expect it to make sense. See me later. But essentially, Easter has a relationship to the vernal equinox and the full moon. The first fruits has none of that in a sense. And I submit that Easter is a departure. Obviously, it's a departure from first fruits, and mostly it's an arbitrary selection. It has no relationship at all. Easter has no relationship at all to Leviticus 23, where all of this is laid out for us. The church has it all the information they need. But for some reason, the Council of Nicaea in 325 decided to separate themselves from Leviticus 23. What does Leviticus mean? Yeah, that's right. It means Levite. What is Levite? Those are Jewish priests. And you begin to see the church move itself out of its Jewish roots. I say this all the time. The first 13 popes of the Roman Catholic Church were what? Jews. But the church has decided, no, we want to separate out of the heritage of the Old Testament. Leviticus 23, 4 through 14 was written two years after the exodus from Egypt. So 1443 B.C. I do not say, I say B.C., I do not say before the common era. I don't do that. Oh, no. I'll be with you in a half hour. Uh, okay. I have to reinforce myself because I that's a lot of exertion. Aspartame is the key to life. That and Worcestershire sauce, as you know. In 1443 B.C., Leviticus was spoken by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And I believe it's logical that Jesus Christ, who is the I Am of 314 of Exodus, the I Am himself in the flesh, knew what he said, he remembered what he said to Moses, and he followed his own words with respect to his crucifixion, his entombment, and his resurrection. He was crucified on Passover, he was entombed, entombed on uh, unleavened bread, and he resurrected himself on first fruits. And he did not require interference from the Nicene Council 1,100 years later. He did not need, did not uh, ask for, in my opinion, no committee meeting to modify Leviticus 23. And he did, and it is not necessary, nor was it prudent. Nor was it obedient, but nonetheless, it is where we find ourselves today. We have this Easter first fruits dichotomy. But, but again, everyone knows all of this. So why do I bring it up every year? I do it because there are seven feast days. There's seven of them. Feast days of the Lord. Now he does say to Israel that he hates Israel's feast day. Because they have done the same thing that the church did. They corrupted them. They added their own Hanukkah, Purim. They made nine feast days. They adjusted the menorah from a seven candle or seven oil light structure to a nine. I bring it up because you, it's very important 
that you know there's seven of them. And this is the one that he chose to resurrect himself on. We're going to get to this in just a second, and it might even make sense today. There's seven pattern. These seven patterns of the of God are critical pieces of information. We shouldn't tamper with them in any way. The crucifixion week is a seven pattern, and it is based on Leviticus 23, where the seven feast day pattern is established. The seven feast day pattern, of course, is tied directly to the creation seven or the seven days of creation. And all attempts to manipulate all the sevens, and I'm just giving, giving you a few of them, three of them, I think three of the most prominent, but all attempts to manipulate the sevens of God are destined to introduce doctrinal error, and they have. And no place is this more obvious than the rejection of the creation seven days by the church. The quasi-theologians who have contempt for the creation seven rarely believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. I haven't met one yet that really does. They start out by telling me, I ask them. I'm kind of a, a, an annoyance that way, think, buzzing that. I will ask them when I go to the pastor meetings that I'm no longer invited to. But when they did invite me, for the brief amounts of time that they did, I would ask them, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is infinite God? They didn't want to answer that. They would die, they would describe Christ this way. There's God and there's Christ and there's a subordination between Christ and God. Now they wouldn't say it as harsh as that, but the, the implication in their language is clearly there. It is how they do it. So you lose the creation seven, you'll lose Leviticus 23, you lose Leviticus 23, you will lose the crucifixion week. It won't make any sense to you at all. You'll think that he was crucified on a Friday, which is not possible based on scripture. That does not make me popular, as you know. And the whole reason that I got into this business was to be popular. That was my plan from the beginning. And I'm on my way. What's that? And rich. Oh, yeah, that rich has been working out. You can tell by my wardrobe in the car that I drive. Okay. That's not the subject for today. All of this that I just said is not. It's merely my obligation to raise Leviticus 23 and the feast day pattern that's established there. Because, again, after all, Jesus Christ established first fruits as his day of resurrection. And at the least, the church should know on this day that this decision by God himself is important. He's com it's a commandment, frankly, to Israel to Understand Leviticus 23 and its great significance and the, and the complexity. Okay, so that's not the topic. That was just for fun, as I define fun. So what is the topic today? Well, I thought about just allowing you to decide. Circumcision or the been in the top three. Uh, so I even ask, I have this, okay, what shall we discuss on this first fruits resurrection? I have done circumcision on Ishtar before, uh, just in case you're wondering. Who votes for black hole singularity? Why? Look, look, one, and he's lying. <laughs> okay, that's what we're going to do for a second. Black hole singularity. Now you understand why you get a buffet. Now, hopefully I've spelled that right. It's not easy to write and spell simultaneously. 
As you know, in the news, supposedly a black hole was located by a team of astrophysicists lately or recently. And if you've been here for any length of time, this is right in my wheelhouse, astrophysics. I'm very interested in physics. I was educated in physics. Uh, I'm not a physicist, but I have a... My first jobs were all based on electrical physics. So we have a black hole supposedly located by a team of astrophysicists. You can see the, the commentary there in the word supposedly by me. The methodology, to be brief, to be shallow, to be cursory, was the utilization of a cooperative series of telescopic systems. That's what they did. They, they equipped them all with a computer algorithm designed to search and observe a black hole. That's the process in a really simplified, simplification of the process. And lo and behold, they discovered a black hole. Or so they thought, and so they have proclaimed. Then the computer is tasked to produce an image of what they have discovered. And I would use quotation marks when I use their language so that you understand that it is not mine. So the computer has the responsibility once they, they have made it uh, admit that it has found something to produce an image of a black hole. So that's a wonderful word, image. That's what kind of word. That's a biblical word. I love biblical words, especially words in Genesis. God actually uses this word in a way that no one else uses it. They have no idea when they say we have an image of a black hole that they are in biblical territory. Where are they? They're in Genesis 3. But no one knows that. So there's, there was this great fanfare and a celebration and huzzas and the compliant media um, was involved. And without scrutiny, they trumpeted the verification of the black hole and they showed the image. How many of you never raise your hand here? How many of you saw the a supposed image of the black hole? Good. Never raise a couple people raised your hands. And now you're open to civil litigation as, as usual. Uh, but you all, most of us saw it and we were wise not to admit it. Um, and the implication of all of this was indeed they believed or they presented as this image is incontrovertible evidence of Einstein's theorizing on the existence of black holes. Ooh, I love that word too, existence. What is that? Well, once again, that is Genesis 3. Existence is a precious Treasure existence is to be used by used cautiously, uh, in my opinion, in the Bible's opinion, for that matter. And I follow the opinion of the Bible as much as I am able. For 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 the sake of advancing the discussion, they have used image and existence, and I know the real meanings of those words. They do not. They use them in a different way than they are designed to be used. But for the sake of advancing the discussion, let's concede to the typical definition of existence as uh, as opposed to the theological or the biblical definition of existence. The biblical definition of existence is exclusively assigned to living beings. Ooh, exclusivity, exclusivity. How'd I do? Ex- 
Ah, no. It's really easy to get this. I'll make a better why. You're lucky I'm not drawing today. Existence is assigned to living beings in the Bible. It's not assigned to things in the sense of non-living things. Non-living things do not have existence. Black hole, when you say a black hole has existence, I go, no, it doesn't. Because it's not a living thing. But that's just, again, let's go ahead and use the non-theological or the incorrect definition of the word existence so that we can move on. I just wanted you to notice all the words being used, existence and exclusivity. Um, and I haven't introduced them the first fruits arbitrarily. I have the, I'm the holder of the most high dry erase marker and I have a plan. Much to the surprise of the regular attendance here. Look at your stunned faces. He doesn't really have a plan. You're all thinking that. I know what you're thinking because I film you. That's how I know. Cameras, you think there's no... Look, look, cameras, filming you now. You're getting away with nothing. <sighs> okay, so do black holes exist, exist as secular humanism defines exist? Do they exist? Black holes are said to possess infinite gravity. Ooh, there's a great word. Infinity. You might have heard me repeat all these words in the dedication element here today. Black holes are said to possess infinite gravity, what's called singularity, which is why we call it black hole singularity. Singularity means infinity. And in this case, specifically, it means infinite gravity. So do this question, do black holes actually have singularity? If we allow their existence as the atheists define existence, what do we think of that? So first I have to say, okay, as you define existence, do they exist? And do they have infinite gravity or singularity? Now comes the inevitable wave of questions. What is gravity? What is the origin of gravity? Does infinite gravity exist? Using the word again. Is it possible to achieve a condition of infinite gravity? Because they say black holes have them and they have an image of one. We'll get to that in a minute. How far away is the black hole? Just asking. Oh, it's really close. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's 50 million light years away. So it's close. Yeah, you know. Shouldn't be a problem. Is it possible to achieve a condition of infinite gravity? And if so, what is the process? Most speculate, as you all know, that infinite gravity is the result of a collapsing body or mass. One that has collapsed on itself. And the result is infinite gravity, or if you will, black hole singularity. See how I'm teaching you these words that you can use on your children? Why then, if that's the, if, if I accept the premise, why would the collapse of an object result in infinity or singularity? 
I have an, a finite mass, and it produces an infinite force through an inward reduction. Why is that true? Is it true? If we continue to be accommodating to the secular atheist community and assume singularity can arise from a finite structure, how can it arise from a finite structure? How can something infinite come from something finite? That is not mathematical, and I have just enough mathematical background to be skeptical here. So... Why would I want to go with the black hole theorem as currently articulated? But if I do, then infinite gravity does what to light? It captures it. It's an inescapable condition. All light is inescapably contained in the grasp of this infinite singularity system. That's a redundancy. All in this. Singularity gravity system would be more correct. By all light, I mean all particle-based light. As See, I have light, too, as a wonderful word. That is what kind of word in Genesis 1-3? Of course, it is a theological word, and the secular humanists or the uh, scientific community doesn't know that and doesn't care about that. But light means something different in the Bible than it does to you and me. What I mean by light is I have their definition. I'm going to say particle-based light. Light is not particle-based in the Bible. It is not a particle light. It is the light of life. John 8:12. That's how God speaks of light. Genesis 1:3. Whenever you read Genesis 1-3, know you're talking about John 8-12. You'll avoid lots of confusion. So, if all particle-based light comes near this singularity, goes through its event horizon, it is captured and it is inescapable. And if this is true and everyone says so, by everyone I mean everyone who says so... It's not necessarily everyone, but everyone who says so says it's true and that we all have to believe it. But the logical fallacy that this is truth is obscured just because everyone says so. That's a logical fallacy. You know that, right? It's called the bandwagon fallacy. I think it's number 10 on the logical fallacy list. Just because... A position is popular, it is not necessarily true. It has to be true based on the merits of itself. Truth can withstand dissent. Truth is truth. Though our academic institutions no longer allow dissent, as you know. Nor does Silicon Valley. Anyway, where was I? Can an image of infinite gravity that emits no light, not one photon... Can I get an image of that? Can't get one photon of light out of it. So what kind of image do I get? As you know, they are implying that this is a photon graph. You might call it a photograph, but I will add the N. Obviously, no photograph of a black hole is possible. It just can't be done, just by the definitions. 
And we can, however, produce a human or a computer generated. It's a human conceived system. And we can get a computer generated image that portends to represent something that is 50 million light years away. And the celebrated image that I'm discussing is a generation. It is a generation of an algorithmic system. And that system has been uh, human predisposed to produce the facsimile that was so popular that is the outcome. It's not surprising. Again, I remain skeptical. But for today, I just want you to notice existence, exclusivity, image, infinity, gravity. Gravity needs to be on the board. Those are a wonderful collection of theological biblical terms that the Bible has placed all throughout the pages. I ask a simple question about the, um, the experiment here. Why did the black hole happen to face the telescopes? Because, you know, you, they, and again, they didn't get the black hole. They had the horizon. The black hole, of course, no photon can come out of it. So they gave you a picture of a horizon and it looks somewhat like a smiley face or a donut or a Cheerio. In any event, I want to know why is it facing the telescopic assemblage? How come it wasn't the the edge instead of the face? Just just wanted to know. There's a, at least a 50-50 chance. It just so happened that we got the face. How convenient. How fortuitous. It enabled this, this searching apparatus to create an image of the event horizon which surrounds the the singularity, the gravity singularity. It's a shame that infinite gravity and its events horizon wasn't perpendicular. Then the algorithm, uh, I would have been interested in what it did with that. But it wouldn't have been able to replicate the edge-on perspective like it did the face-on perspective. I hope that makes some sense to you. But assuming that infinite gravity exists and the accompanied agreed-upon, that's it's unverifiable. Not only is it unverifiable, but it's unfalsifiable. And all of these words become very important today. It's another theological term. We're accumulating a whole bunch of uh, of these. Let me just finish this little section because I'm almost out of sections and time. Can gravity exist by itself? Is it, it did it self-generate? Ultimately, if you've decided that gravity can self-generate, then you're allowing for other things to self-generate. Does that make sense? If you say no, then you're in a different position. Let me ask another question. Can infinity occur by physical means? If no, what then can create infinity? Or if you prefer, we can ask it this way. Make it more philosophical or theological. Are gravity and infinity in the spiritual realm and not in the physical realm? We have never yet begun to understand the force or the event that is gravity. 
We just we can describe what it does, but we cannot describe what it is. Never have we been able to humanity. So I want to know is gravity and infinity in the spiritual realm. So when I and when I have a gravity singularity, am I having am I really talking about two things that are not physical? That's what I'm asking you. So is if it's not in the physical realm, then it will be in the spiritual realm. And then the next question becomes the George Berkeley question, doesn't it? Is everything in the spiritual realm? If there is nothing in the physical realm, and the first thing you'll learn in philosophy class when you walk through the door is the professor will stand up and tell you there is no such thing as spiritual, I'm sorry, as physical reality. And everybody runs up to hit him in the face with a rock saying there, what do you think of that? But Berkeley's premise has withstood. And of course, as you know, quantum physics has verified. It's called the implications of subatomic or the spiritual implications of subatomic diameter. There is no physical reality, which means if that's true, then everything is in the spiritual reality, which means what? What is the source of the spiritual reality? Well, there's only one possible source of spiritual reality. Consciousness. Is consciousness the source of all things is where this discussion ultimately comes. And obviously, this is the truth of the Bible. This is the, what the Bible proclaims without equivocation. It declares it. Absolute consciousness is the source of all things. There's an absolute consciousness. And he, if you wish, is the source of all things. He identifies himself as he. So it's not as you wish, it is what the Bible says. That is the truth. That is the first thing the Bible declares. There is no physical reality. Everything is the so- is sourced origin from an intelligent agency, a consciousness, a supreme consciousness. Our consciousness, you have to first begin to wrestle with your own consciousness. Where does your consciousness come from? You have one, you have self-awareness. How did it arise? How did it take over your brain, which is a physical device? Because your consciousness has authority over your physical brain. How did that happen? The Bible says that was uh, consciousness is a gift from the absolute consciousness or the absolute observer, if you wish to have a quantum physics position. There is one who observes all things. That, that, that means that person is omniscient. Omniscience is infinite. So we have infinity now attached to that Absolute consciousness or absolute observer effect. And that is what the Bible says. The physical reality cannot, does not exist apart from consciousness or intelligence or intelligent agency. And therefore the question of all the ages, right? Who is he? What does he want? What's he doing? Why is he doing it? Has he shown himself to anyone? We have been designed, us living beings, those of, we're living beings as the Bible describes us. And of course, animals also described as living beings, living souls. The word's the same for humans as it is for animals. There's some, some issues with regard to uh, exoskeleton and invertebrates and all of the other aspects of 
breath and lungs, and uh, we'll get to that another day. But, but your dog is described as a living being, so is your cat. So if you love your dog and you love your cat, the Bible describes them as living. They have existence. You've heard me say many times, if you have existence, existence must be eternal in order for it to be existence. It can't be temporary. If it's only temporary, then it's not really existent. Do I have commentary from the young lady? She's welcome to intervene. Everyone would love her over me, I can tell you that. It's going to get worse here in a minute. Again, the buffet is really good. Really, really good. Just hang in there. Okay, we have been designed, living beings, we have a device, a physical machine. I'm going to use just the brain today. We have a brain, and that brain is not the source of our consciousness. The Bible says the brain is our conduit for our consciousness. The brain itself is not conscious. The consciousness, the self-awareness, the knowing who you are. I know I'm me, and I know that you know that you're you, because I know that I'm me. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? The self-awareness that activates and interprets the brain is the consciousness. And it's apart from the brain. They're interlinked. They're called interdependent by the biological professionals, the neurologists. They know that there's something different about the brain and the mind. The mind-brain problem, they call it. Recently, neurological researchers have been taking the brains of recently killed animals that were slaughtered. They took the brains. They've been dead for about four hours, the brains of recently killed animals. And they put those brains into a device that floods the brains for, uh, with blood and oxygen, or actually with a blood uh, substitute. And the experiment was to do what? What do you think they were looking for? They were looking for brain cell activity after death. Could they reestablish brain cell activity? Here's a quote. The brains showed none of the activity, electrical activity associated with consciousness or self-awareness. That is a quote. How much electrical imaging do you get when consciousness is in the brain? You get a lot. When consciousness is not there, there is no electrical activity that can be measured. They go on to say this. If such consciousness had appeared in the experiments, we would have injected anesthesia and reduced the temperature to end the self-awareness of the consciousness if we were able to get the evidence of it. And what is the evidence? It's electrical. It's chemical. It's light. It's photons. Something has to take that information and interpret it. The brain just is the conduit, as I said. It isn't the interpreter. But I want you to consider what they said, because they said if they, if they had seen the electrical imaging of consciousness rise up from brains of animals that had been dead for four hours, infused with this blood substitute, they would have immediately put in anesthesia and dropped the temperature to end the consciousness because that would be cruelty. They recognize the cruelty of that. That's an interesting thing. Consider what they're saying. Expect sometime very soon someone's going to attempt this with a human brain, aren't they? If they haven't done it already. Thinking, who's the most likely candidate for this? Oh, that's right, the Chinese. Someone will attempt this, and, and they think, they're hoping that they can restore consciousness. 
And they're already asking, they're already positing. If we're able to restore consciousness in a brain that has been dead for four or five hours, would the brain experience confusion, pain, or agony? Would the brain feel? Let me ask it this way. Can the brain feel? What is feeling? Heard me say many times, people who have been had amputated limbs actually feel their fingers. Feeling is a neurological event. It's not necessarily a physical event. Again, throw the rock at the professor, not me. Can consciousness be reinstalled into a physical, albeit biological, organ? In other words, can I put consciousness back into a brain? Can I do it? I'm a very smart biologist, neuroscientist, and I've got all this blood substitute and a big computer. Can I get consciousness back into that brain? What's the theological term for that? That's right. Finally, he's getting to the point. It's resurrection. Which is why we're talking about it on First Fruits. Time to read First Corinthians. I don't really have time. Oh gosh, I gotta do it though. I gotta really go fast now. Food's getting cold. Ah, fifteen twelve. Here we go, really fast. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and we know that Christ raised himself from the dead. Notice how I said that. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, who is God, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have died, fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in this life only, only we have hope in Christ, we, have all, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if Christ has not resurrected himself, then we are the most to be pitied. If Christ did not, could not raise himself, then we of all men are the biggest fools. That's what the Bible says. But Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. That's what he says of himself. If you continue reading that, calls himself the first fruits of the resurrection. And therefore, we who are believing in him are guaranteed to be resurrected into eternal life. Jesus Christ, famously, 1125 of John, I can't read that enough. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me, he says. Yes or no, it's yes or no question. Notice that the uh, article there is the. He doesn't say, I am a resurrection, one of many, I am the John 11:25 establishes along with John 10:9 and John 14:6 the exclusivity of Christ. He is the singularity. Infinity is just for fun. If you come next week, I'll explain this, but you can do it on your own. You're all really smart. Most pastors will say he they have the smartest congregations. That's just patronizing. Uh, I don't know if we're the smartest. Uh I know we have the strangest pastor. 
Don't we have good hats? Yeah, oh yeah. Strong hats. Go on to that. Infinity causes exclusivity. It's a cause and effect. It's mathematical. It's geometry. Basic geometry. If then, if P then Q. Basic logic. If Christ is infinite, then there is only one person that does what he does, and there's only one way of salvation. Those have to be mathematically correct. You can do the math. Go get your geometry book. You got it in the eighth grade. Open it up to the logic section and do the proof. If you can't, come next week. Buffet won't be very good next week. We're really trying to put on a show. It'll, it'll be awful. But, uh, I will answer that question. He is the one who resurrects. He's the resurrecting one. He says so. He's the only door. He says that. He's the one and only door to life. He is the one way, the only life, the only truth. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. He and the Father are one, John 10:30. They are the same, one and the same. It's called triune sameness. In Scripture, it comes from Genesis. It's the us, the Elohim of Genesis. And it's a fundamental of Scripture. And it is universally assailed by the world. The fundamental being that Christ is the only one that can resurrect and save anybody. Nobody else can do it. All, all resurrections are from or through Christ. There are a few that are through Christ, but Christ is the resurrecting one. And it is referred to as the great flaw of Christianity by the world. Christians are urged to never speak of this exclusivity. It's called the question that cannot be answered. They think I can't answer it. They think no one can answer it. Well, I can answer it. I'm answering it now. Christ is the only one who can save you. No one else can. That makes him infinite, which makes him the singularity, which makes him the source of gravity. Infinity can only come from infinity. Consciousness can only come from consciousness. Existence can only come from existence. It's a simple mathematical, logical proof as well. You see, if we're asked by the world, is Christ the singular means of salvation, resurrection, truth, and life, and we affirm, we answer yes, then what do we get? Condemnation heaped upon us, contempt, scorn, mocking. It is the ultimate politically incorrect thing, which is why it needs to be said every single day. Who can resurrect? Who can reinstall a living soul and reanimate a dead body? Who can do that? Who can restore a body that has been, that has disintegrated to dust, to ashes? I see the hands. Who can, who can take a disintegrated body and re-establish it completely? Install the consciousness. Replace the memory. Information cannot be lost or destroyed. That is a basic principle of quantum physics. It's the fundamental principle of quantum physics. John Bell. Look him up. Where is that information? Who can find it? All of it. How many cells do you have in your body? 27 trillion. Who can resurrect the billions of the dead, long dead, dead for thousands of years? There's only one who can, and he says he is the only one who can, the only one that's able, and he says he will do it. How much power, how much knowledge... How much capability does he say he has? 
If Christ is not the infinite God of life, the creator of all things, John 1, 3 says he is, then there is no hope of resurrection. Do you understand that? There's billions of people that need to be resurrected, not to mention their dogs. Billions of them. How much information does he have to have to do that? We're not flooding a dead brain of an animal with a blood substitute here. If he's not the infinite God of creation, then there is no hope of resurrection because resurrection is impossible apart from Christ Jesus, which is why his resurrection is the first fruits. It's the proving. It's the evidence of who he truly is. It's why he picked this day. It's the revealing because what did he say he was going to do? He said, I'm going to raise myself, destroy this temple. Oh, that gets us into Solomon's temple. That's interesting. Solomon's temple, they estimate, uh, was 1,000 years B.C. And this is what? Approximately 2,000 years A.D. How many years do you think we got so far? Oh, 3,000. That's probably a coincidence. That's not. You just threw that in for just to annoy you. Consider the mathematics of the resurrection of, infinite, of the infinite God, because that's who Christ always is. He's never not infinite, omniscient, omnibenevolent, which means good. He's never not omnipresent. How much information does it take? How much power? How much does Christ weigh? How much does God in the flesh weigh? How, how, what is required to resurrect the infinite God? That's why he says he has to do it. And compare with the numbers of those who require resurrection. How much, how much number, what, how big a number is it resurrecting everyone that has ever lived? Because they have existence. They still exist. What's, what's missing is the body has to be repaired, if you will. How much information is necessary to get all of them? Somebody has to be able to do that. Well, how do you prove that you can do that? You prove you can do that when you are God and you have infinity and you have omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and you raise yourself. That's how you do it. That's why he did it on this day, Leviticus 23. Obviously, being infinite is an asset. If you've got to raise a whole bunch of people, being the infant one is a valuable commodity. If you have the job of resurrecting everyone who's ever been given existence and every animal that has been given existence, you have to know them all. He demonstrates that with Adam, right? First thing Adam does is name every single animal individually. That's what he did. How many animals were there? How smart was this guy? Finally, everyone cheers. We are in the age of non-falsifiability. Everything is non-falsifiable nowadays. Science, politics, religion, logics and facts are cast aside. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought as a child. I was an emotional being. I can bring these little emotional things out. They're always emotional. They're a thousand percent. That's mathematically ridiculous. They're a hundred percent emotional. When you're an adult, you don't think like them anymore. You don't think emotionally. You think mathematically. That's what Paul is saying there. In our society, 
logic, facts, reason, they're becoming meaningless. Emotion is sweeping. Madness, frankly, is sweeping through humanity. There is no reasoning with madness. You cannot, you cannot present evidences to madness because their position is non-falsifiable. All that remains is to shout out the truth of Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the life of, uh, the light of life. He resurrected himself to prove that he alone can save from death, all death. He'll do it. He wants to do it. He will do it. Do you believe him? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Is what he asked. Yes or no question. Let's rise and be dismissed.